Welcome to Navigating Consciousness. I'm Rupert Sheldrake, and this is a podcast of my talks and conversations. If you enjoy listening, please subscribe and leave a review in your favorite podcatcher. It really helps. I'm speaking today about Psy in everyday life, um, what I sometimes call the mysteries of everyday life. Because there are a lot of phenomena that almost everyone is familiar with, uh, which we encounter on a regular basis, uh, which don't fit in to the standard worldview of materialism. And there's a peculiar situation where these phenomena are normal in the sense that most people have experienced them, but they're classified as paranormal, beyond the normal, Uh, in many academic circles because they don't fit in to a theoretical model of the nature of reality. Um, So I'm going to be talking about uh, several of these phenomena. One is the sense of being stared at, that feeling that um, you can tell when someone's looking at you behind. You just turn around someone looking at you or you look at someone and they turn around. Surveys show that more than 90% of the population, including children, have had that experience. Um, I'm also going to be talking about uh, telepathic abilities of pets, dogs and cats. Um, A majority of dog and cat owners uh, believe that their pets are psychic and can pick up their thoughts or intentions. Um, Are they all deluded? I mean the owners. Um, um, Or is something really going on? And then I'm going to talk about some of the more common forms of human telepathy, and there are many kinds, but uh, I'll talk about um, telepathy between mothers and babies, which is quite common. I mean, obviously, those of us who are not mothers have not experienced this. We might have done when we were babies, but um, it's quite common among uh, nursing mothers. And then finally, I'll talk about uh, telephone telepathy, the phenomenon whereby you think of someone who then calls, or you just know who it is before you pick up the phone. Surveys show that about 80% of the population have had that experience. So all of these, by any usual criterion, are normal, not paranormal, natural, not supernatural. They're phenomena that are part of everyday life. Now, why is it that they're so controversial? Why is it that some people who self-identify as skeptics get terribly angry if you take these phenomena seriously? Um, the reason is that they go against a theoretical assumption of the materialist worldview, which is still the dominant orthodoxy within institutional science. Um, and that assumption is the mind is nothing but the activity of the brain. Minds are what brains do. Therefore, it's all inside the head. Therefore, your thoughts and intentions ought to not to be able to affect anyone at a distance um, directly. I mean, of course, you can affect people at a distance by talking to them or ringing them up on the phone. But just by looking at them, you shouldn't be able to affect them. Uh, Just by thinking about them, you shouldn't make them think about you. And uh, so when you ring them up, they say, I was just thinking about you. And just by intending to go home, you shouldn't be able to alert your dog or cat to that fact. So they go and start waiting for you at a door or a window. These things should not happen. But they seem to happen. Most people think they do happen. So how does one deal with that situation? One possibility is to do experimental research on these subjects to find out whether they do happen or not. That, I think, is the more scientific approach, the one I try to adopt myself. 
Um, another is to deny that they exist and to say they're impossible and anyone who believes in them is stupid, deluded, uh, uneducated or pseudoscientific. And that, I'm afraid, is the approach of many dogmatic materialists um, who get extremely upset at this idea. I mean, if you publish papers on this kind of thing or talk about them in public forums, you can almost guarantee there'll be a whole host of abusive uh, trolls on your trail. Uh, I mean, I'm attacked the whole time by such people um, for doing this kind of research and taking these phenomena seriously. Why do they get so upset? It's not because they're primarily concerned with science and evidence, uh, because most of the dogmatic skeptics I meet aren't interested in the evidence. They actually don't want to look at it. Um, and it's not really because they're devoted to empirical science um, or proof of anything, because the very same people are perfectly happy to accept it when cosmologists tell them there may be billions of unobserved universes, happy to accept billions of unobserved universes without a shred of evidence. Dark matter and dark energy, 95% of reality, um, happy to accept that that exists with no evidence. Um, Superstring theory, the dominant theory in theoretical physics, has no empirical tests or evidence, and yet something like 80% of theoretical physicists earn their livings doing this. So it's not as if this applies to any area of science. This particular area arouses extraordinary controversy. And I think it arouses it because it challenges the materialist worldview uh, that the mind's confined to the inside of the head. Uh, if any of these everyday phenomena were true, that theory would not be true. So what I want to do first is to look at an alternative view of the nature of the mind and see how we can test it. So the one view you're all familiar with is the mind is the brain, it's inside the head. Minds are what brains do. Another view is that the mind is a system of fields, that minds are field-like. They're normally rooted in brains but extend far beyond them. And we're used to the idea of fields uh, stretching out beyond material objects with magnets. A magnet has a magnetic field inside the magnet, but this magnetic field stretches out around the magnet as well, and can be detected at a distance. Um, what's it made of? Well, in the 19th century, people thought magnetic and electric fields were made of an ether, subtle matter. Einstein showed that they're not made of ether, subtle matter. That doesn't exist. They're just made of fields. Fields are patterns in space, regions of influence. The gravitational field of the Earth is inside the Earth, but stretches out far beyond it, um, holds the moon in its orbit. It's invisible. We can't see it. We can only know about it through its effects. And it's affecting us all right now, otherwise we'd be floating around in this room rather than uh, on the floor or on our seats. Um, the electromagnetic field of your mobile telephone is inside the mobile telephone, but it stretches out invisibly beyond it. And this room is filled with radio, TV and mobile telephone transmissions, um, which we can't see. What I'm suggesting is that it's possible to think of minds as being field-like, grounded in brains, root, normally rooted in brains, but stretching out invisibly beyond bodies and heads. And if we think of a field theory of the mind in that way, then some of these so-called paranormal phenomena become perfectly normal and become 
something that can easily be incorporated into regular science without getting angry and getting involved in a culture of denial and, and, and having to become a troll and, and anything like that. It's so much easier to accept them than deny them. And I think in more accordance with reality. Um, so how can we actually examine this, these two theories of consciousness? And there are many others, but these are the two I'm interested in at the moment. Um, and uh, the easiest way to see the difference between these two is to consider what happens during vision. When you see me here now, for example, um, you all know the official theory, uh, lights reflected from me, goes through the electromagnetic field, enters your eyes, inverted images on your retinas, changes in the cone cells, impulses up the optic nerve, and activity in various parts of the brain which can be revealed in greater detail than ever before through brain scans. Well, that's what we know, and it's very impressive, and we know more than anyone used to know about vision. But does it explain vision itself? Well, no, because first of all, it doesn't explain why you're conscious of what you see, and that's an example of the hard problem. The very existence of consciousness is a problem from a materialist point of view. Because if all matter's unconscious and everything's made of matter, then Consciousness ought not to exist even in brains. So it's called the hard problem. The fact that consciousness exists in human brains. Um, uh, but the second point is the one I'm interested in, which is where are the images you experience? You're experiencing images of this room and of me and of each other in it. Where are those images located? Um, the official view is they're actually inside your head. Somehow your brain produces a three-dimensional full-color virtual reality display, which is what you're experiencing, but it's somewhere inside your head. Now, no one's ever seen such a display inside a head. During brain operations, when you expose brains, um, you don't actually see full-color 3D displays inside the nervous tissue or hovering around it. So no one's ever seen this, but this is just the theory. You create representations inside your head of what's out there. The alternative view, um, which is the one uh, which is in a way much more natural, much more ancient and much more widespread, is that uh, you're actually creating these images, uh, you're creating a kind of three-dimensional virtual reality display, but it's not located inside your head, it's where it seems to be, it's projected out into the world around you. So uh, this theory is so simple it's hard to grasp. Uh, what I'm suggesting is your image of me is inside your mind, but it's not inside your brain. In fact, it's right here where I am standing. That You've projected out your image to where I am, and that's how vision works on this theory. It's a two-way process. Light comes in, changes happen in the brain, and images are projected out. Now this is the theory of vision that most ancient Greeks believed in, and Euclid 5th century BC, uh, used this theory to explain for the first time how mirrors work. How mirrors work, according to Euclid, is that you're projecting out these virtual images. And because they're mental rather than physical, they go straight through the mirror. And so you see these outward projections behind the mirror. That's why they're there behind the mirror. Even modern physics textbooks, when explaining mirror, mirrors, uh, have dotted lines to where the virtual image is behind the mirror. And they say that this line is formed, the dotted line represents the projection 
are of a line subtended by the eye towards the virtual image. So I'm suggesting every time you look in a mirror, what you're seeing is your own visual projections that are out there, not in here. Um, this theory was also um, is believed in by traditional cultures all over the world, and is believed in by Western children until the age of 10 or 11. Jean Piaget, the developmental psychologist, showed that until the age of 10 or 11, children assume that vision involves an outward projection of images. They don't necessarily spell it out as a theory, they just assume it. Which is why Superman comics show rays going out of Superman's eyes, and why Roald Dahl's story Matilda uh, has eye beams that can move things. But children love this, because it fits with the way they think vision works. But Piaget showed that by the age of 10 or 11, the average child learns the correct theory, which is that thoughts and images are invisible things located inside heads. And so all of us, no doubt, have learned the correct theory, wouldn't have got to a university if you hadn't done, um, that thoughts and images are inside your head. And so we've been brought up with that from an early age with no evidence offered for it, um, but just simply that's what everyone believes. It's a paradigm, a model of reality. So if you believe that theory, then looking at something can't possibly affect what you're looking at. However, if you're projecting out your images so that they coincide with what you're looking at, there's a sense in which your mind is reaching out to touch what you're seeing. And you might be able to affect what you're seeing through looking at it. Now, is that possible? At first, you realize you're meant to think, no, that's totally impossible. But then if you reframe the question and say, okay, well, that's not just an abstract question. What would happen if I look at a particular person from behind when they don't know I'm there? Um, could they possibly feel my gaze? As soon as you ask that, you realize this is a very common experience. As I mentioned, the feeling of being stared at um, is extremely common all over, over the world, including with children. So what's going on here? The official materialist view is that this is an illusion. It's simply a coincidence. Occasionally someone turns around when you're looking at them, uh, but that's... Uh, just because they would have turned around anyway, and you only f you f remember it, but you forget all the times you're wrong. Or you turn around, and if no one's looking at you, you just forget it, but if someone's looking at you, you think it's significant and there's something really going on. That's the usual way it's explained away. But what's the actual scientific evidence? It, it's necessary in science not just to have a hypothesis, but to have actual evidence for it. Um, well, you can actually test. Well, first of all, you can inquire. Do people really feel uh, when they're being looked at from behind? I started this inquiry with natural history. All branches of science have to start from natural history. And how I did this was by interviewing security guards, um, store detectives at Harrods, um, the head of um, surveillance for London Underground, um, and private detectives uh, about what they'd noticed. when they, These are people whose job it is to watch others. And most of us are mere amateurs. Um, but when I spoke to the professionals, I found that most of them just completely took it for granted. Of course, this is real. And um, it, it's just taken for granted among practical people. In the SAS, the British SAS, when people are being trained how to creep up behind someone to stab them in the back, um, they're told, don't stare at their back because they'll feel you coming and they'll turn around and shoot you first. Um, 
And uh, so this is just something completely taken for granted. If you go on a private detective training course, and I'm guessing that's not part of the Northampton curriculum, um, um, so you may not have done it, but if you go on a private detective training course, one of the things you're taught about shadowing people, how to follow someone, is don't stare at their back. Because if you do, they'll feel you and turn around, catch your eye, and your cover's blown. You have to look at them a little bit, otherwise you lose them, of course. But you look at their feet. Um, so, um, in the martial arts, it's taken for granted that this exists. And in some martial arts techniques, um, people are trained to become more sensitive uh, to knowing when someone's looking at them from behind with a potential uh, intention to attack them. Uh, because if you can feel that, you're more likely to survive than if you can't. So there's an abundance of natural historical evidence about this from people whose job it is to watch others. Um, so then the question is, well, can you do experiments? Well, you can. The simplest experiments involve people working in pairs. They're so simple a child can do them, and in fact, tens of thousands of children already have done them. They've been done in schools in Britain, Germany, and America. Um, uh, one child is blindfolded, the other sits behind, um, and in a randomized series of trials indicated um, by an instruction sheet or by a click or a beep, uh, they either look at the back of that person, the subject's head, or they look away and think of something else. And after 10 seconds, people have to guess whether they're being looked at or not, yes or no. They're right or wrong. By chance, they'd be right 50% of the time. In fact, averaging over hundreds of thousands of these trials, uh, the average score is between 55 and 60%. It's about just a bit over 55% averaging all over. Not a big effect, but fairly consistent. And almost every group of people who does it gets an above chance score. And when you have that level of success over hundreds of thousands of trials, it's massively significant statistically. Um, at least as statistical, uh, statistically significant as the value of statins in, in um, uh, reducing heart attacks and so on. The kind of evidence that's accepted very widely in medicine on which our National Health Service is based. Um, so um, these, these are, of course, some people are spectacularly better than others. Young children are often much better than others. And um, the, the, the most sensitive subjects seem to be children under the age of nine. In the Amsterdam Science Museum, the NEMO Center, this experiment's been running for more than 20 years. It's one of the largest experiments ever conducted. And the, the overall results are massively significant statistically. And that they've had a lot of families take part, which is why uh, the spectacular success of young children has shone out so clearly, as it does in my own research. This also happens if you do it through windows or through one-way mirrors, which uh, greatly reduce or eliminate sensory cueing. Um, so this is not just an artifact of changes in breathing rate or smell or other sensory modalities. And it even works through closed-circuit television. There have now been a lot of experiments uh, through CCTV uh, of, um, of this kind. In those experiments, people have usually measured the skin resistance of the people being looked at, uh, which changes when people are emotionally aroused, like in a lie detector. And people have significant changes in their skin conductance when they're being watched in random randomly timed trials compared with when they're not being watched. And these experiments have been done widely in 
Britain, US and Germany. Um, and the results are overall significant. Now, um, this is also something that you can uh, talk to surveillance staff about. I've interviewed CCTV personnel um, and this is something that they've noticed too. I mean, it's quite widely accepted among people who do video surveillance. It's a huge industry uh, that if you look at people on CCTV, they can feel it. For example, a, short, a stall detective told me that they, when they watch people shoplifting, if they watch them hard enough, the people would then start getting uneasy, look around and put the goods back and walk out of the shop. Um, so uh, this is something which is well known to professionals in the field. Um, so the evidence seems pretty overwhelming. Most people think it's happened. Um, the evidence, the scientific evidence, suggests that it really happens. Um, uh, what do the skeptics say? Well, Callum asked me to mention something about skeptical responses because it's relevant to the courses some of you are doing. Well, the, the, the response from skeptics has been rather muted. Uh, there was a special issue of the Journal of Consciousness Studies in 2005 devoted to the sense of being stared at, where I wrote a target article about the evidence and a target article about the theoretical basis of the phenomenon. And then 14 different scientists were, wrote responses, several of them skeptics, and then I did rounded it up at the end. One of the editors of the Journal of Consciousness Studies of the advisory board threatened to resign if the journal published uh, any articles on a subject he said was total nonsense and should never be allowed in any scientific journal. So the editor asked if he could quote from his email, and he agreed to that. And he then said he wouldn't resign if they changed the title of the journal. So instead of the title of the special issue being The Sense of Being Stared At, it's called The Sense of Being Glared At, subtitle Sheldrake and His Critics. Um, if you want to see what the skeptics say, then take a look at that. Basically, um, Skeptics have investigated this. Richard Wiseman, for example, did some experiments with CCTV. He got positive results. So he said they must be a statistical artifact. I asked to see the data so I could reanalyze them. He said he couldn't uh, retrieve them. Half the data had been lost. I got half the data, but they didn't back up his argument. Um, he then, uh, instead of having students doing the looking, did the looking himself. And then he got the result he expected, a non-significant effect. When interviewed about it, he said it was really boring and he was just glancing at the people and it, um, he, because he thought it was a waste of time. So you can see there could clearly be an experimenter effect. If you don't look very hard, you won't expect to get much effect. Um, Marilyn Schlitz at the Institute of Neurotic Sciences then challenged him to do some joint experiments. They had a pool of subjects, half went to Richard Wiseman, half went to her. She got a positive effect even in his own facilities at Hatfield, in Hatfield. Um, and he got a non-significant effect, showing a clear difference. He could, she couldn't have got a positive effect just by wanting to. People were in other rooms. Uh, but he could have got a non-significant effect by not looking very hard. Anyway, there's been a literature on this experimentary effect in the staring phenomenon um, based on an actual debate between uh, Richard Wiseman and Marilyn Schlitz. Um, other people uh, did experiments uh, on this subject. Susan Blackmore, who's a skeptic, did one. 
um, and her student for a PhD, no, an MSc student, got positive results, uh, suggesting this was a real phenomenon, but they were not published. And when I asked for the detailed data, they'd been lost. So um, the skeptic case is not very strong when it comes to the sense of being stared at. And the non-skeptic case is vastly stronger because it's not based on a huge amount of natural history, plus lots and lots of experimental data. Some of you may be skeptics in the sense of not wanting to believe it, but um, I would say this is a, a, an area to watch because um, this is an area where research is quite easy to do, quite uh, quite possible. It can be done under real-life conditions as a recent project. Um, who, who did that, uh, Callum, that recent project uh, with the naturalistic conditions? Oh, yes, that's right. Ross Friday um, did a study with people walking on a dangerous area of a campus. Sometimes they were wa being watched and sometimes they weren't. And the whole thing was filmed. And um, people were, uh, even under these naturalistic conditions, the results were positive and statistically significant. So anyway, here's a very simple phenomenon, the sense of being stared at. Everyone's heard of it. It happens with animals too. And I think that its evolutionary origins are in predator-prey relations. I think all animals project out their visual world like we do. It's not something human. It's something about our animal nature. If a prey animal could tell when a hidden predator was watching it, it would tend to escape better than the one that couldn't. So there'd be a good natural selection uh, procedure uh, sort of favoring this sensitivity. And um, again, in my book, I summarize all this evidence, including with animals in, in my book, the sense of being stared at and other aspects of the extended mind. All my peer-reviewed papers on this are available on my website, sheldrake.org. So I haven't, I'm not flashing up huge tables of data, but they're all there if you want to look at them with all the statistics. Um, so I want to turn now to... Um, and the, uh, another of these mysteries of everyday life, namely uh, psychic pets. Um, many people claim their animals pick up their thoughts or intentions. And again, my own starting, I found there'd been no research on this, just none. I mean, even though millions of people are really interested in it, it hadn't been done because people working in animal behavior telepathy is a completely taboo area. You'd lose your job, or you'd never get a grant, or afraid of being sort of thrown out of universities. It's that the prejudice and the taboo is extraordinarily strong. I mean, again, you might, if you're not in that sort of mindset, you might think, what's so threatening about a psychic dog? Um, but it, it, some people get terribly upset at the idea that dogs could be telepathic. Um, I started by asking pet owners what they'd actually found with their animals. And I have a database now of more than 5,000 cases of people telling me stories about their animal's perceptiveness. And when you get hundreds of stories that tell you very much the same thing, then it becomes something worth investigating further. For example, many people said that their cats seemed to read their minds and they, when they were planning to take them to the vet, the cat would disappear. Cats don't like going to vets on the whole. Um, and then when it happened several times, people said, well, they tried not to let the cat know. They didn't let it see the carrying basket. Um, they tried not to think about the pet, um, um, but the cat still knew. So some of them in despair took to 
ringing the vet from work so the cat couldn't overhear the conversation, and then swing by home after work to pick up the cat. It was still in hiding. Um, so we did a survey of all 65 veterinary clinics in the North London Yellow Pages, rang them up and asked if they had a problem with people missing appointments with cats. 64 out of 65 said, yes, it happens all the time. And the 65th one said, it happens so often we've given up the appointment system for cats. People just have to turn up with their animal. Um, so here's one area. Uh, which is, again, commonplace. I mean, talk to any vet and they'll, they'll know that this is something that's a common phenomenon. It's not paranormal, weird, uh, not like in TV shows where they have sort of green lights and spooky music. This is kind of normal stuff. Uh, the one that's easiest to investigate experimentally is dogs that know when their owners are coming home. Many dogs go and wait at a door or window uh, when the person's on the way home, so the people at home know when the absent person is coming. And um, I have over a thousand cases of this on my database. Um, and this is not very impressive if it's a routine time or if it's just a minute or two before, because it could be hearing footsteps or the crunch of car wheels on the gravel. Um, but for many people who have non-routine lives, um, the dog still anticipates when they're coming, even 10, 20 minutes in advance. I have at least 30 cases from women who've told me that their partner, who works as a taxi driver, lawyer, journalist or something with irregular hours, uh, uh, comes home at uh, unpredictable times, but they always know when he's on the way because the dog goes and waits at the door. So they start cooking his uh, dinner so it's hot on the table when he arrives. Lucky men. Um, uh, so, um, so it's not the people at home knowing when they're coming giving clues to the animal. So to test this, um, the experiments are quite simple. You film the place the dog waits. You have the person go at least five miles away in my experiments. You have them come home at a non-routine time, randomly selected, um, that they don't know in advance. We tell them by telephone when it's time to go home. Uh, they don't know when they're going to go. The people at home don't know when they're coming, or sometimes there are no people at home. And they travel by unfamiliar cars, uh, usually taxis, um, to avoid any familiar car sound, a different taxi each time. Um, so uh, these experiments have given very repeatable results. Um, the dog I've worked with most, called JT, lives near Manchester, um, uh, in, out of a hundred videotaped experiments, uh, anticipated the owner's arrival in more than 80, uh, on more than 80 occasions. Sometimes he didn't do it. Sometimes when he was sick, sometimes when he'd been for a very long walk and was fast asleep, but mostly when there was a bitch on heat in the next flat. And this showed that JT could be distracted. Um, but the statistical uh, analysis shows a massively significant effect. Um, I've got a film of one of those uh, experiments, if Callum could help activate it. This was done for Austrian state television, so the um, commentaries in German but it's got English subtitles, and of course it was an English-speaking dog. Well, you can read the peer-reviewed papers on these studies with JT and other dogs on my website with all the statistics. The sceptic angle is that I invited Richard Wiseman to do experiments with the same dog because he criticised this research by saying, I hadn't taken into account routine, I hadn't taken into account familiar car engines, I hadn't taken into account people at home knowing when she was coming, all of which I'd been taking into account for a year before he made the criticisms. 
So I said, okay, you do it yourself your way. And he did very much the same procedure. I lent him my video camera. He got very much the same results in his experiments. The dog was at the window about 4% of the time when she wasn't coming home. If you take the whole time period, he made occasional visits to look out of the window or bark at passing cats. And when she was coming home, uh, he was at windows 78% of the time. It was a highly significant difference. I was astounded when soon afterwards um, uh, I read headlines in the newspapers saying psychic dogs fail to give scientists a lead, psychic pet phenomenon refuted. And he'd issued a press release um, saying that he'd refuted the entire phenomenon. The dog had failed the test. Why? Because it had gone to the window before she started coming home, so all the other data could be discarded. Um, We've had a long dispute over this in the scientific literature, and there have been three or four books that have looked at this controversy. Um, So um, the arguments uh, have been looked at by objective parties, and you can read those too if you're interested. Um, But this is a kind of celebrated case in um, the activity of a committed skeptic using the media to get across a skeptical message, um, which uh, totally distorted the facts of the case. Um, Anyway, again, there's a whole video about Wiseman's experiments showing them and so on, which you can find uh, on my website and elsewhere on the internet. So if you're interested in the details, they're all there. Now, I want to move on, because time is limited, to human telepathy, which is where the intensity of the debate hots up even more, um, uh, because uh, this is one of the things that's kind of like a red rag to a bull for dogmatic skeptics. And most um, telepathic experiments that have been done in parapsychology have been uh, with rather artificial situations, like the Gansfeld, people looking at video videos in one room of people lying with half ping-pong balls over their eyes in dim red light in another room. Um, Perfectly fine procedures, but um, my own approach is not to start from laboratories, but to start from real life. And so when I I have a database of human experiences of telepathy and other psychic powers, again, another 5,000 or so cases. And one of the commonest is with phone calls. And as I said at the beginning, most surveys have shown in Britain, America and Germany and in South America too, about 80% of the population have had the experience of thinking of someone who then rings saying, I was just thinking about you, that's funny, or knowing who it is uh, before they look at the caller ID. No one thinks this might be telepathic if someone says, I'll ring you at six, and that's a punctual person, they do ring at six. It's when it's somewhat unexpected that they find it. Uh, surprising. How many people here have had that kind of experience? It's probably a majority, yes, certainly a majority. Um, so it's, it's a common. Now, the skeptic argument is, well, you think about people all the time, um, and sometimes one of them rings, then you imagine it's telepathy, but you just forget the millions of times you're wrong. I heard this argument hundreds of times from armchair skeptics who'd then sit back with a satisfied smile as if they'd refuted the whole phenomenon. So I said, well, you know, where's the evidence? That's a hypothesis, but where's your evidence for it? I couldn't find a single study on this subject anywhere in any scientific literature. So it was an evidence-free skeptical hypothesis, so I decided to test it. 
And the sceptical hypothesis is chance coincidence. So you can test that statistically. So in my basic experiments, um, I find people who say it happens to them fairly often. Um, then they give me the names of four people they know well and their phone numbers. During the experiment, they sit at home with a landline with no caller ID being filmed. And we then pick one of the four callers at random by a throw of a die or by a random number generator. Um, we ring them up and say, please call your friend, uh, think about them for a minute or two and then call them. So their phone rings. They know it's one of these four people, but they don't know which one. And they can't know through knowing that person's habits because they've been picked at random. Before they pick up the phone, they have to say who it is. I think it's Mary. Pick it up. Hi, Mary. They're right or they're wrong. The chance level is 25%, one in four. In more than 600 of these trials, film trials, the actual score was 45%, um, which is way beyond the chance. I mean, it was massively significant, one times 10 to the minus nine, a statistical probability more significant than the Higgs boson. Um, and um, this work has now been replicated at the universities of Freiburg and Amsterdam. And I now have an, uh, a telephone... Uh, you can try it yourself. I now have um, on my website in the participate section, sheldrake.org, um, a test you can do with two other people. You register online. It works on mobile phones or landlines. If you're the subject, you pick two people to be your callers and you ask them if they'll take part. And when the times when you're all free, you register that in. Um, then the computer picks one of the two people at random, rings them up, um, and say, say I'm one of the callers, and say Callum's the subject. It would say, this is um, Callum's telephone telepathy test. Please think about him. When you're ready, press 1. I press 1. Callum's telephone rings. Caller ID says telephone telepathy test. A message says, this is your telephone telepathy test. One of your two callers is on the line right now. Press one for Alex, press two for Rupert. So he guesses. And as soon as he's guessed, the line opens up and he gets instant feedback. And the, the people, then you can chat uh, it, it, for up to a minute. It then cuts off because I'm paying for the call. Um, and uh, after a random time delay, it does it again. And the test consists of six trials. This is a new version of the test I've just developed. It's the beta version uh, at the moment. We're going online with this in the next two or three days with a new improved version. So any of you can take part, and please do. It's a, one of my aims is to make this kind of testing available to anyone. So you don't have to have a white coat or work in a lab or have a grant to do this. Anyone can do it. And find out for yourself how you get on. And if you want a statistical thing, organize a group of people to do it. It could be a great classroom experiment in schools or universities for everyone to do it. Um, so the idea is to demystify this research, make it so anyone can take part. And um, my ultimate aim, really, with this one is to see how, um, if, if people can train themselves to get better at this at telephone telepathy, and if they can, um, then uh, organize national telepathy contests. So you'd find out who's the most telepathic person in Britain. The finals could be on TV. Um, and, of course, they'd be done on rigorously cheat-proof conditions with, with skeptics like Chris French advising on the conditions to avoid cheat cheating. 
And if there's a prize, a lot of people would be incentivized to do this, to learn to improve their skill. Um, and then if that works, then the ultimate would be the telepathy Olympics. And if there were a telepathy Olympics, lots of people would try and improve these skills because they'd want to win. I mean, they learn all sorts of useless skills for acrobatics in Olympics. And why not learn intuitive skills that would be uh, quite... And if that happened, then the question of is this real or not would stop being a question. There'd still be sort of flat-earth society groups of deniers. But if that happened, I think the evidence would be overwhelming. And I think it's more likely to become overwhelming through doing it in the real world than through slogging it out for another few decades in academic seminar rooms. Um, so anyway, uh, this is a very simple kind of experiment. It's a phenomenon that most people have experienced. It's normal, not paranormal. Um, it happens with emails and text messages as well. I've, I've published papers on similar tests using emails and text messages. Um, and I have here, the, the final film I've got here is um, uh, one, some of you may have seen this, a test I did for television with the Nolan sisters. Um, when uh, Channel 5 heard about this research, they said they wanted to film some of these experiments. And I said that was fine, and they could film the people I was working with. And they said, well, we don't want them, they're just ordinary people. We need celebrities. So they found the Nolan sisters, five of them, um, and that's what you'll see here. Well, again, you can read the peer-reviewed papers online on my website, a, a, a whole series of papers on telephone telepathy, email telepathy, and text message uh, telepathy. The beauty of doing it with telephones is you can actually uh, test for distance. And we recruited subjects who'd recently arrived in England from Australia and New Zealand. We did tests where two of their callers were people they'd recently met in Britain working as barmen in Earl's Court or nannies or whatever. Uh, and the other two were their nearest and dearest down under. And they did better with the people the other side of the world uh, than the ones in Britain, showing emotional closeness is what matters rather than physical distance. A lot of other research on telepathy has shown it's distance independent. In that sense, the closest physical analogy is quantum entanglement, where two particles that have been part of the same atom or system when they move apart, remain connected at a distance, so a change in one is instantly registered by the other, what Einstein called spooky action at a distance. This is now widely applied in quantum computing and cryptography. Um, it's a real effect, and it doesn't fall off with distance. So it's the closest physical analogy. I'm not saying this is quantum entanglement, but I'm saying it's analogous to it. Um, so... Um, Telepathy, um, also uh, one of its features that emerges both from the natural history and from our experiments, is it typically happens only between people who are closely bonded. It doesn't happen between strangers. It doesn't happen with random dogs and random people visiting the house. It usually happens with just one person to whom the dog is most closely bonded. And telepathy in the real world among people happens most between parents and children, husbands and wives, lovers, best friends, close colleagues, uh, sometimes therapists and clients, where there's been a transference or counter-transference, um, where there's an emotional bond. Uh, uh, one of the problems with some of the earlier parapsychology research is that it took total strangers with meaningless stimuli, which are not emotionally engaging, removing almost all the features that are important in real life. 
still got slightly significant results, but looking, working with the grain of the phenomena gives much better uh, data um, because that's more how telepathy actually operates in the real world. I think that members of social groups are bonded to each other in a way that's a real kind of bond. It's through my own theory, is called morphic fields, that they, a, a social group like a flock of birds or a school of fish are bonded together. And when they go apart, this, these connections stretch rather than break. So they remain connected at a distance through a new kind of field, um, which explains or helps explain these phenomena. So what I'm saying is that these very common phenomena, which are part of um, everyday life for a lot of people, um, are not taking us beyond the realm of science into the supernatural or the religious or the spiritual. They're about horizontal connections, not spiritual connections. I'm interested in spiritual connections as well, but these are about links to other people or to the environment or to things we're looking at or to animals. Um, they're very practical things, and I think that telepathy has evolved in the context of social groups, and it's evolved because it's useful. Um, for example, until the invention of the telephone, um, any mother who left her baby uh, wouldn't have been able to know by normal means, if she was a mile or two away, um, whether the baby was in distress and needed her. But if she could tell by telepathy, her, her milk lets down, she feels, uh, this is what happens today, it's always happened, I'm sure, to mothers, uh, she'd feel the baby needed her. And they used to, mothers used to go to the baby when they felt that happened. They now ring up on a mobile phone. Um, and they're much more often right than wrong. I've done tests on this which showed overwhelmingly significant results. Um, again, this would have survival value. A mother that can know when her baby needed her at a distance would have babies that survived better than a mother that didn't know. And so I think these things are perfectly within the purview of of science. If we have a narrow dogmatic materialism, we're forced to deny a whole range of phenomena which most people believe happen because they've experienced them, not because they've been brainwashed, but because they've experienced them. And that's why many people find scientists dogmatic, narrow, and, and, and doctrinaire, and indeed many of them are. Um, but when we have a brain expand the science, then these things fit comfortably within an expanded science. They fit comfortably within an evolutionary view. And they mean instead of denying a whole range of phenomena, we can accept them and investigate them further. And um, I think it's particularly important that this um, is something that's going on here at Northampton University. There are very few universities in Britain or anywhere in the world where you can actually study these things because they're considered pseudoscience. And the people who edit Wikipedia um, have captured, the skeptic groups have captured all whole areas of Wikipedia to do with psychic phenomena, alternative medicine, and biographies of people like me, and edit them in the most hostile possible way um, in, and get away with it, um, because they're determined to distort the popular perception of these, so that all this is instantly branded pseudoscience, and people who do research on it, until very recently, have found it almost impossible to get jobs in the academic world. It's so taboo. When I submitted my paper on these 100 filmed experiments um, to Animal Behavior, the leading journal in animal behavior, uh, the JT experiments with the dog, I got a letter back from the editor-in-chief 
almost by return. He said, dear Dr. Sheldrake, I'm returning your paper on uh, so-called telepathic dogs because no reviewer for this journal would for a moment contemplate approving a paper that mentioned the word telepathy. Therefore, to save your time and hours, I reject it without reviewing or refereeing. And I'm afraid that kind of attitude is all too common even today. So um, if you want to see what, um, because I was asked to mention, I don't normally dwell on skeptics, but I was asked to do that specifically. Um, I had a debate with Michael Shermer, who is the leading, uh, one of the leading skeptics in America. He's editor of the Skeptic magazine, chairman of the Skeptic Society. He writes the monthly skeptic column in Scientific American and is the chairman of the Bay Area Skeptics Group. In other words, he's a skeptic and a, a, a professional skeptic. And when um, my book, The Sense of Being Stared At, which is about telepathy, premonitions, and, um, and, and, and uh, telepathy and premonitions primarily. Um, the, he, um, the USA Today newspaper did an article on, on this book and interviewed me. And it was a fair article. It, and then at the end, as journalists do, they ring up a skeptic for their comment. And right at the end of the article, they had a comment from Michael Shermer saying, uh, everything Sheldrake claims can be explained by perfectly normal means. Uh, I've never heard of a goofy idea he didn't believe before breakfast. And that's how the article ended. um, So I emailed Michael Shermer and said, would you care to tell me your normal explanations for the phenomena I discuss in this book, like telephone telepathy? He emailed back and said, do you think I waste my time reading your stuff? Of course I haven't read your book. I was appalled. I mean, they're, they're taken seriously. And then the journalist who'd done the article rang me two or three days later in tears. And she said she'd have been called in by her editor because the day the article appeared, they'd had a call from the Committee for Skeptical Inquiry in America saying that they'd brought their entire newspaper into disrepute by being taken in by a charlatan and pseudoscientist like me. And this journalist should never be trusted to write an article like this again. In future, all articles should have comments from people like Michael Shermer much more frequently throughout the article. And in fact, all such articles should be sent to them for comment and approval before publication. So this is how these organizations operate in my own experience. This is not some kind of ideological thing of mine. I mean, this actually happens. So if you want to see, uh, Michael Shermer and I actually did a debate together, a three-part debate, including on telepathic phenomena, which was published in this book, Arguing Science. And I put forward the arguments, this is a typical experience of mine, I put forward the arguments for the evidence for telephone telepathy for dogs that know when their owners are coming home. He just simply ignored all the evidence, all the arguments. His only response was to have a cute picture of himself with his dog saying, this is my cute dog, she doesn't know when I'm coming home. And that's all he said. I mean, anecdotal. I mean, if I'd said, here's a dog that knows when I'm coming home, that proves dog telepathy exists, he would just scornfully dismiss it, of course, and rightly so. His counter-argument was just an anecdote with a picture of his own dog. Um, So the standard of argument that I've encountered among professional skeptics is abysmally low. Uh, The the best of them all is coming to talk to you here. That's Chris Rowe. uh, Not Chris Rowe. (laughs) Chris French. Chris French. 
the two Chris's are actually rather well matched, I think. And the Chris French is, um, uh, he's, a, he's an informed skeptic, and he's the first to admit that many people in the skeptic movement are bigoted and uh, simply uh, irrational. But he is an informed skeptic, and he doesn't deny there's evidence for these phenomena. In fact, I run my experimental designs past Chris French before I do them. With the telephone telepathy test, um, I asked him to do it himself so he could tell me if he found any flaws with the test. And uh, he did do it himself. And out of six trials, uh, he's the only person who's ever scored zero. Um, way below the chance level. So I said to him, Chris, look, this is just not, I mean, this is way below the chance level. And in fact, I said, when I look at your guesses, you get it right every time for the next one that's going to happen. It's like a precognitive displacement. And, and uh, so he's got a good sense of humor. He said, oh, he said, my friends are always telling me I'm a psychic in denial. Um, so anyway, Chris French did do one of my telephone telepathy tests in his lab with subjects. And the results came out positive and significant. Um, but unfortunately, the system had a glitch in it before the end of term. And that was my, well, it wasn't exactly my fault, it was a technical fault. So they weren't able to complete this series uh, of, um, of tests. But they did test quite a few people. And, and um, he found one young woman who's a Reiki practitioner who got six out of six. And he was astonished by this. And um, so um, it is, uh, Chris French is, is, is a good example of an informed skeptic um, who does know about the evidence. He says, yes, of course, there's some of this evidence. There's evidence for these psychic phenomena, but there's not enough evidence to convince me yet. Now, how long can you go on saying that? I mean, you can move the goalposts over and over again. Um, so... I'm glad he's coming here um, because he's by far the best in my experience of, of the skeptic movement. Um, but the reason I mentioned this is because Callum asked me to. Um, but, the, but the point I want to end with is the point where I began. We have in ordinary life and in most people's experience a whole range of phenomena which simply don't fit into official orthodox science as it exists at the moment. The sense of being stared at, psychic pets, um, telephone telepathy, mother-baby telepathy, and I could expand it, precognitive dreams are also very common. Um, so we're in this peculiar cultural situation where if you discuss these things in a pub or a family gathering or a dinner party, most people are going to say, oh, that happens to me, and they'll tell you their stories about their dog or their telephone calls. But the minute you enter most universities, there's a kind of culture of denial, a, a, a chilly silence, a kind of area of taboo descends. And most people who have these experiences don't want to mention them in scientific company because they're afraid they'll get attacked. Um, so it's, it's like gays in the 1950s, you know, they were all in the closet. The scientific world is full of closet telepaths, as I know from my own experience, because whenever I give talks on this in scientific institutions, always people come up after and say, oh, that happens to me all the time, but I can't mention it to my colleagues. They're all so straight. And actually, one after another comes and says the same thing. Um, so I think that what we need in universities is a kind of coming out movement. And um, I'm glad that Northampton's actually leading the way. So I'd be very happy to answer questions. Thank you very much, Rupert.
So I hope you have any questions at all. Yes, Liz. Um, I'm, I'm quite interested in the um, telephone telepathy, the individual differences. Because you were saying that on average people were doing it about 40% correct, yeah. and Colleen Nolan got 50%. 50%, yes. Um, I was wondering, you know, whether, you know, how, how one could explain the difference of 10%. I mean, is it is it because she was close to her sisters? I'm wondering if there's ever been any kind of twin telepathy, yes. telepathy studies. I'm just wondering because that's quite a, that's quite a significant difference, isn't it? Between well, it is, and there are some people who 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 score at the chance level consistently who don't seem to have this ability at all. So I think there's two or three factors involved in these differences. One is there are different sensitivities. Um, we expect that in musical ability or mathematics or the sense of smell, and I, I don't think telepathy is any different. There's individual variation in almost any human characteristic you care to name. Um, so that's part of it, individual differences. And part of it does depend on the nature of the bond between people. Here we've got four sisters who sang together for years, who lived near each other, who are really close. Whereas in some of my experiments, um, they might have one or two close people who could take part and then they had to scrape the bottom of the barrel for the others you know just acquaintances who were willing to do it with them uh, one reason in my new version of these tests i've reduced the number of corners to two is it's much easier to recruit two people than four people um, so um, the, there hasn't been enough research on this to look into what are the personality correlates of telephone telepathy uh, but that could be done and there's also so far been no research on how you can train this. It could be that you can actually improve your abilities, as I mentioned earlier. Um, and so some people may have just been more practiced in it. Mm. You know, people talk about you know, twins being on the same wavelength, don't they? I mean, that's just a, a, a kind of a... Yes, twins are very telepathic quite often. I mean, there's been a number of studies. There's a whole book on it by Guy Lyon Playfair, who was a member of the Society for Psychical Research on Twin Telepathy. Um, showing very impressive cases of telepathy between twins. And um, telepathy literally means distant feeling, telepathy. And it's not really thought transference. It's not primarily about complex thoughts. It's about needs, and like babies needing their mother, and people wanting to call another person. And some of the twin telepathy is completely physical. You know, there are cases where he, which he documented where one twin would be on a journey and be in a, where they get car sick and the other one at home would suddenly be sick for no apparent reason. Um, and in a sense, the mother's knowing when the baby needs them, their milk letting down is a, a bodily response primarily. It's, about, uh, it, it's not a mental, primarily mental. Uh, so I think these things are often very physiological and very basic and with twins they're often very, very strongly developed. Not all twins, but some have it very strongly. Um, I'm curious to know if you've done any research where um, people will know if something bad has happened, something like an accident, or um, and then they actually find out, like phone them, or you know that instinctive dread feeling. And I know that you know it's commonly talked about, but I don't know if you've actually done anything. Well, I've I've certainly got a lot of these cases in 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 my book. Uh, dogs that know when their owns are coming home and other unexplained powers of animals. Um, I've um, 
summarized more than 100 cases of, of where dogs, people reported that the dog would suddenly behave strangely. For example, there was a, a couple from St. Albans uh, were on holiday miles away and on Easter around midnight, on just on, on Easter Sunday, the eve of Easter Sunday, uh, the husband had a heart attack and died. And at that moment, the dog started howling, and their dog sitter did everything to try and console the dog and stop it howling, couldn't find anything wrong with it. And the next morning, the widow rang and said, you know, my husband died of a heart attack. How's the dog? And she said, well, has been howling all night. Um, so that kind of story, um, we've got about a hundred of those, not always howling, sometimes shivering, whimpering. Sometimes it's not always fatal with, with serious accidents. Um, so the problem with that kind of research, oh, and, and with people too, it's, it's quite common for people to see or feel or hear or dream of a person who's just died or is just in dying or has had a serious accident. So it's not just death, it can be serious accidents. The problem is, of course, that you can't do experimental research in this area. You can't ask people to die at a randomly chosen time so you can observe their dog on camera. Um, so um, it's an area where we have to rely on spontaneous cases rather than experimental interventions. But there are a lot of them. And in the 19th century, one of the first things the Society for Psychical Research did in the 1880s was look at these uh, cases of uh, apparitions or visitations from people who it later turned out were dying or had died at that time. And then before telephones, um, they were often people who were in India, posted in India or something. It was weeks before letters got there and people found out. But it was, I mean, th those were some of the first cases that were actually investigated um, and which led them to their interest in telepathy. More questions, please. The antagonism that exists between researchers and skeptics is clearly dysfunctional. Yes. Do you see any strategies that can be adopted to maybe diffuse that tension a little bit? It could be done differently. Well, it's a very good point. I mean, I've spent a lot of time thinking about that because obviously it affects people like you and me. And um, there's some who I think are beyond any kind of reason. The kind of people who ran, run Rational Wiki, for example, are, are completely committed trolls who are completely immune to evidence. If anyone tries to... Um, I mean, for example, they say that I've not published any scientific papers in peer-reviewed journals for 40 years. I published you know, 60 or something. Um, so if someone then tries editing and say, he's published these, here's a list, it just gets deleted. So that kind of thing is um, very hard to see what one can do about that. They're, they're worst on Wikipedia and, and Rational Wiki because they're almost immune from any kind of reasoned argument or evidence. Um, otherwise, I've, I've found that having debates is one way. I mean... I had a debate at Cambridge with Chris French, and that was quite <coughs> helpful. I mean, um, I, but many of them won't take part in debates. Michael Shermer wouldn't take part in a debate with me when I first challenged him. Uh, the only reason he did was that the people who organized this debate said they really wanted to get an American. They couldn't find a single skeptic in America who was willing to have a debate with me. So I said, well, you may need to incentivize them. And uh, I said, I think Michael Shermer is probably the most susceptible to financial inducement. Mm -hmm. 
So they they got back to me and said, yes, we've we've spoken to Shermer and uh, it's uh, he'll do it for ten thousand dollars. So I said, well, I, I suppose in interests of fairness, you'll have to give me ten thousand dollars too. <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, so I mean, it, it, they, this is a key point because, as you probably know, the, the Templeton World Charity announced this new thing just two or three days ago. I, I, have you seen that? Mm. This, I'd mention it because others may be interested. The, there's an organization called the Templeton World Charity. It's different from the Templeton Foundation that gives the Templeton Prize for um, uh, to do with science and religion. The Templeton World Charity has well over a billion dollars. It's based in the Bahamas. They want to promote research on consciousness. And uh, they want to decide between different theories of consciousness. For example, I started by talking about the materialist theory is all in the brain and a field theory that it stretches out beyond the brain, which would allow for the sense of being stared at and telepathy. And so what they want is to have people who have different beliefs to get together, agree on experiments, then they'll fund the experiments, no doubt lavishly, because they're incredibly well off. Um, and they want to encourage several labs to join in collaborative <coughs> efforts to engage, uh, to move the whole subject forward. When I thought about that, because they're serious, I've met some, several people from there, and they are serious about wanting to do this. They really want to move on this whole subject of consciousness studies. They have almost unlimited funding. Um, but when I thought about it, I thought, how many people on the so-called skeptical material side would actually be willing to enter into level playing field tests? I think Chris French might be. I mean, but when I thought of the whole world, I mean, he's about the only person I could think of. I know that people like Dennett and Dawkins would just say no, and, and, and they, they've got no experience in this field of research anyway. But um, So I think that their proposal for a well-funded attempt to have what they call adversarial collaborative research um, is a good idea, but I suspect it's going to be very hard for anyone to actually put it into practice. And that's one attempt to deal with this. Um, I think that one way of, of, of changing it is for actually for people to come out of the closet, as I said. I mean, in universities, there, there are lots of people who've had these experiences with dogs and cats and the sense of being stared at and telephone telepathy. And I once gave a talk at the European Molecular Biology Laboratory in Heidelberg, Germany. Um, and this is the most hardcore of reductionist biology. I mean, you, most of them would have been committed materialists. And I happened to have a meeting with the director before my talk, and he was very friendly, and I asked him if he'd ever had telephone telepathy experience, and he said, oh, it happens all the time with my wife. And so during the lecture, I asked people to raise their hands if they had this experience, and at first not a single hand went up except mine. And then I looked at him, and I wondered what he'd do, because he'd told me just a few hours before that he'd had these experiences. So very slowly, his hand went up. <laughs> and then slowly, hands went up all around the room till it was about 80%. Uh, in other words, the normal kind of level. So now, you see, if members of that lab felt free to talk to their colleagues about what they actually experienced, it would become a normal topic and of, of conversation, rather than a taboo they can't mention. Um, so I think what will normalize this within science is people just speaking freely. Um, and then I think what will become clear is that the skeptics don't represent people who truly believe in 
Most of them don't represent people who are truly on the side of science, reason and evidence, but they're on part of an ideological campaign. In my book, The Science Delusion, I deal with the ten dogmas of materialism, including the dogma that psychic phenomena are illusory. And I found that it really, at the end of each of these chapters, the ten chapters on the ten dogmas, I have questions for materialists. For example, if you believe in dark matter, do you believe in the conservation of dark matter on the principle of conservation of matter and energy? I mean, they believe that all matter and energy is conserved. There's always the same amount. But dark matter, we don't know what it is. We don't know where it comes from. We don't know how it works. So do they believe there's a total amount of dark matter is always the same or not? It's a real question. And I think it can open up a non-adversarial climate of debate. Um, that's what I try to do myself. And I've actually had very little problem with dogmatic skeptics in England uh, in the last few years. The, the biggest problems are on, on online with the Wikipedia ones. And as I say, I think they're beyond the reach of reason. Um, but I, I think this, the, the, the fact that consciousness studies is becoming more and more um, fashionable, important, talked about, uh, is, very, is very good news. And I, I do think that this university is at the forefront in Britain of this subject. And, um, so I think that as this becomes more so, and as more money is put into it, the Templeton Foundation, the Templeton World Charity, um, is willing to throw lots of money at this problem. And, and they're not committed to a materialist point of view. They want it to be tested on a level playing field with other points of view. Um, and I think that's a very encouraging sign. I think another thing that's changing the field of consciousness research is this new phase of research on psychedelics, which has made many more people get interested in consciousness science. And Michael Pollan's recent book, How to Change Your Mind, the New Science of Psychedelics, which is a bestseller for months, it was number one on the New York Times bestseller list, um, has helped to normalize and altered states of consciousness, make them much more mainstream. And I think it's much harder for people to maintain this kind of narrow dogmatic materialism in the face of personal experience of psychedelics and in the face of peer group pressure of their own families and friends talking about things like the sense of being stared at and dogs that know when their owners are coming home. So I think that it's uh, something that's actually the climate is changing remarkably fast. I never, I've never seen such a rapid change in the general atmosphere. Um, so I think that the, the best thing really is to try and engage skeptics. And I sometimes go and talk to, I give talks most years to Chris French's department, his skeptic department at Goldsmiths College, as probably you do, Chris. Uh, um, and I also um, sometimes go and give talks to their skeptics in the pub groups. And I find that most of them are not virulent, dogmatic skeptics. They're just people who like hanging out with others, a kind of social thing, and, um, and talking about ideas. And, and again, I've found that um, a quite reasonable response among such groups. So I think we can all do our bit by bringing up these topics. Everyone in this room could bring up with their friends and family things like the sense of being stared at, dogs that know when their owners are coming home, and telephone telepathy. And I guarantee there'll be some people in the room who'll say, oh, that's happened to me. And there may be some people who say it's rubbish, it's nonsense. But then they'd have to justify it in the face of uh, people in the room who say that's happened to me.
Hi, um, yeah, that was really interesting. Thank you. Um, I wonder if you can comment or you could provide any more insight as to how religion or faith might um, come into this. Because I have um, friends and I, see, I speak to people who talk about their telepathic ability to, to think about certain things or know certain things, but they don't actually attribute it to that. They attribute it to being... Um, being religious or having faith in God and, you know, that, that connection between them and their God mm. an explanation for that. Well, I myself am very interested in, in, in spiritual practices. And in fact, my most recent book, Science and Spiritual Practices, is about seven different spiritual practices for which you can do, which have measurable effects, meditation being the most obvious, um, singing and chanting be another, being another. Um, and I think that the, the point about these spiritual practices is that they give a, a direct experience of being connected with a form of consciousness greater than our own, or being in the flow of something part of, greater than oneself. I think myself there's a distinction between the psychic and the spiritual realms. I think psychic phenomena are to do with connections with other people, you know, babies needing their mothers, people wanting to call on the phone. It's not particularly spiritual, it's just about normal biological needs. The sense of being stared at, you know, the possible threat from someone dangerous, you know. These are normal biological things that we share with other animals. In fact, many species are better at them than humans. Um, but I think the spiritual phenomena about um, the feeling of connection of our own minds with some uh, more than human realms of consciousness. And what distinguishes atheists from, or at least materialists, from uh, religious people is that materialists think there's no consciousness out there. It's all just in the head. So even if they meditate, as many materialists now do, I mean, Susan Blackmore's an ardent Zen meditator, Sam Harris, one of the new atheists, is now giving online meditation courses. Um, they think that the experiences are inside their head, that they're not really connecting with some other forms of consciousness because there are no forms of consciousness out there. That's their belief system, and they interpret what they're experiencing in that framework. But for people who are, are religious or spiritual but not religious, who thinks there are forms of consciousness greater than the human level, then these spiritual experiences can give a sense of connecting with or participating in a consciousness greater than our own. So I think that religious and spiritual experiences um, are separable from psychic experiences, but both kinds imply that our minds are more extensive than our brains and that consciousness is not confined to the inside of heads. And of course, atheists are generally speaking against both. Um, there are some religious people who are against psychic phenomena. Um, and there are some people who are very psychic who are against spiritual phenomena. So um, they are distinguishable areas. But personally, I'm interested in both because I think both realms of experience uh, point to minds being more extensive than brains. And what I call here, um, in the sense of being stared at, the subtitle is and other aspects of the extended mind. I think our minds are extended beyond our heads through fields and also through potential connection with other forms of consciousness. Can I just ask, you've obviously been working in this area for some time now. Yes. Do you see any practical application 
<coughs> see that it, it will take us somewhere by finding out about this? Yes, it's a very good question, because in most areas of discovery, you can think of practical applications. In the case of um, telepathy, um, in a sense, the practical applications came before the discovery. You know, mothers for human mothers for hundreds of thousands of years, and hominin and primates and mammals in general, all mammals breastfeed by definition. I would imagine this picking up when the baby needs them has been going on for 60 million years since mammals evolved. And discovering about it and um, now having telephones that enable you to do the same kind of thing more effectively. Um, in a sense, the practical use came before the technology. In a sense, the technology of telephones imitates telepathy, although telepathy is evolving along with them. Um, I think that the most... I didn't talk today because of lack of time about precognition or premonition. Um, and I think precognitions and premonitions, feeling in advance something is going to happen, happen in several ways. Um, among animals, they're quite common. And I have a whole section in my book, Dogs That Know When Their Ends Are Coming Home, about animal warnings of tsunamis and earthquakes. Many uh, examples, right from ancient times, um, show that animals somehow pick up when there's going to be a disaster like a tsunami or earthquake, sometimes several days in advance. And in the last 25 years, I've studied most tsunamis and earthquakes. When possible, I have an investigator on the spot. For example, the Great Assisi earthquake of 1997. I had an Italian research assistant, and within a day of the earthquake, she was in Assisi and going around asking people about their experience. And in that case, um, it turned out there'd been things in the local papers and the mayor's office had had problems because for three or four days before the earthquake, the rats had come out of the sewers and were swarming around the town. And restaurateurs were complaining because tourists were being put off and they told the authorities, do something about it. Um, and then the earthquake happened and there were lots of other unusual forms of animal behavior. Now that could certainly be applied. And in 1975, the Chinese started using animal warnings as a way of predicting earthquakes. In the West, people simply won't listen to this. Um, I tried to... Um, um, they, they actually successfully evacuated cities based on animal warnings and other traditional signs. Seismologists can't give predictions of earthquakes. And in fact, they say it's impossible. Um, and I wrote an article about animals and how you could set up an animal warning system um, and I tried to get the British scientific, chief scientific advisor interested after the, the big tsunami. And he was completely scornful. He said, this is nothing to do with biology. He said, this is a physics problem. He was a physicist. And he, he said, it's just folklore and superstition. It was a very, it's, even today, very difficult. But you see, now everybody's got smartphones all over the world. Everyone's got internet connections. It would be possible to enlist large numbers of people in reporting unusual animal behavior, if they see it in California or places prone to tsunamis, going to a central website or you'd have a central address they could send messages to. And if there was a surge of messages from a particular region, then you could, it could be an early warning system as the Chinese used, but modern technology would make this really easy. Um, so I think that's one area that could easily be an application 
I've tried to get this started in California, um, and it, would, it wouldn't require much funding, but uh, I tried to get the funding, because I had someone who said, well, I'll do it, but I, you know, I've got to pay the rent, and it'll take time to set this up and publicize it. So I, first I tried the, um, the insurance industry. I thought, well, they'd be interested in this. And they thought about it, and they said, nothing in it for us. He said, even if we give a warning, we'll still have to pay out damages when buildings collapse. They said, nothing doing. And so I tried the life insurance industry. And they said, well, because of building codes in California, most earthquakes don't involve more than two or three lives being lost. So there's nothing in it for us. And, and um, so uh, capitalism didn't ride to the rescue in this case, and, and, and no one else has. But it, it, would be, it would require a sustained effort to do this. But compared with existing seismology, as you know, which costs hundreds of millions of dollars, all these sensors and things, which aren't effective in short-term prediction. So that's one area. The other area, another area is short-term presentiment, which I've never worked on myself, but in parapsychology, um, it's a, one of the more interesting findings that people feel an emotional response four or five seconds before it happens. And I'm pretty sure this underlies the success of successful day traders on the stock market who are guessing on the movements of prices over a time frame of two seconds. Um, and um, I'm speaking to a firm in the city of London of day traders at the moment. Uh, we're thinking in terms of developing a training app. Um, and if people could sign on to a training app and, and learn to become more sensitive to these, these feelings, they could make millions. Their, their top trader in this company that I'm talking with makes about 20, 30 million pounds a year um, just by doing this. And it had never crossed his mind it was a psychic ability. He didn't know about presentiment. But the, the, when I asked him, how do you do it? He said, oh, I just seem to know when something's going to happen. He said, I'm always there at the screen when news is breaking. And he said, I just feel when the market's going to go up. He said, I'm just lucky. And he'd never heard of any of this research. But um, I'm pretty sure that the day trading world is actually selecting by natural selection for people with this ability. And if one could demonstrate, I mean, my aim is not to make lots of money. Um, I mean, I'd be pleased if I did, but that's not my motive. My motive, if, if I'm able to help develop such an app, is to show that if people are making tens of millions of pounds by using this ability, then it's real. And no amount of skeptics saying, oh, that's impossible, these people assume frauds. I mean, no amount of them saying that will take away from the fact that it, if it is a fact, that people can use it to make money. I think in day trading, trading courses, they say the opposite. Pardon? They say not to trust your instinct. They look at a lot of statistical stuff. What, what, what day trading? No, but I've got friends that have done trading courses, and they said it's the, the opposite to what you're saying is what they're told by the trading. The, 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 if you try to use your psychic abilities... Probably if people think of it as a psychic ability, it may not work very well. I, um, this chap didn't think of it as a psychic ability. Um, it would be a matter of finding a training app where you didn't, don't need to mention presentment, you just say practice on, on this kind of, on an app. The other area where I would actually, you know, if I had unlimited funds and resources, would be to build in some of these experiments into video games. 
because there's millions of people playing video games all the time. And there are some video games where you could have a choice people have to make to go through one door or through another door that could be set up so that it's actually a presentiment experiment, that if they feel which one's going to be scary or which one's going to be the good one, um, they could score above chance levels. And it would be possible to m monitor these scores and use video games. That would not so much be... Um, a money-making scheme, but it would be a way of doing this research on a massive scale using existing technologies. Yeah, you, you use the expression materialist uh, quite a lot. Do you mean that in an ontological sense? And if you're not a materialist, how would you describe your philosophical belief? I would say that I'm... I'm, I'm a panentheist. Um, I may have to explain that, but you know, you're a panentheist, aren't you? Okay, good. Well, there's at least two of us in the room. <laughs> panentheism is a philosophy of nature and a theology which says that um, God or ultimate consciousness is in all nature, and all nature is in ultimate consciousness. It's distinct from... The, pantheism says that the whole of nature is conscious and is divine, but there's nothing beyond nature, nothing transcending nature. The supernatural theism says that the whole world goes on as a kind of mechanical machinery automatically and somewhere out there there's a god who might occasionally interfere by suspending the laws of nature. That's the kind of god that most atheists don't believe in and the kind of god I don't believe in either. Um, because it means that nature is just automatic and mechanical and the, the god is at best a kind of optional extra outside the universe. But panentheism is a worldview of that you have a spiritual dimension in all nature. All nature has a transcendent conscious basis, which is important in interpreting spiritual practices. But neither of these worldviews, uh, this, this is not an essential worldview for telepathy. Telepathy and psychic phenomena can be dealt with with a much lower level hypothesis of the extended mind without necessarily needing to go all that way. And there are some people who are happy with the idea of extended mind who are not panentheists or, or even panpsychists. Um, so, you know, there's a range of philosophical positions. <laughs> um, you, you, when you talk about uh, telepathy, it's kind of following on from what you just said. You often mention it coming from kind of a biological need, kind of yes. another child. I wonder what your take is. So uh, I'm a counselling psychologist. So within my practice, I'm often having information that I shouldn't, I shouldn't really know about. I might have visions or, or you know that kind of thing. So that would be deemed to be transference, countertransference. But I'm also able to do kind of psychic, mediumistic type uh, things, blindfolded, get information about somebody's life, complete stranger. So that would it be implied that that's from a, a spirit, if, if, it, if you were looking in a, a, a psychic viewpoint, potentially. Mm. I just wonder what your, what your thoughts are on that. But the phenomena is the same in both situations. I see. Well, um, I think many counsellors or many psychotherapists find they pick up telepathically from their patients. I mean, Freud did himself, and, and he wrote about it, but rather secretly. And he told Ernest Jones, his, his follower, that, you know, of course these things happen. 
but we mustn't talk about them because it would undermine the credibility of psychoanalysis as a science. So, and Jung was much more open to them and had these experiences a lot. And I have a friend in New York who's a psych- Freudian psychoanalyst who I saw only a couple of weeks ago, actually. And he has a group of fellow, fellow psychoanalysts. They meet on a regular basis and they share what they call vignettes about their telepathic experiences with their patients. And so there's some Freudians have broken out of this sort of denial, and at least among themselves, and are thinking this is a really interesting topic. Now, this is a bit different from um, picking up information in a more perhaps clairvoyant way. I, I myself have never done research on on spirits or, di- or channeling or disembodied um, phenomena. And as you know, there's been a long debate within psychical research about this. When people get true information, um, is it in fact telepathic from someone else's mind or is it coming through some disembodied spirit? And that is a, a rather difficult to decide. And uh, when people talk about spiritualistic information as proof for survival, the main counter-argument to that is, is that it's super psi, you know, that it's super telepathy. It doesn't prove there's a spirit out there, it just proves there's a strong psychic ability. Now, various people have done research to try and distinguish between those two, as you probably know, mainly Gary Schwartz in America. Um, and he thinks the evidence favours the idea of disembodied spirits. But this is a highly controversial area. Now, it's not one I've ever got involved with myself. Um, I stick to the more normal kind of telepathic phenomena. Um, because if anything, it gets the sort of um, the so-called skeptics excited. I mean, telepathy gets them really wound up and put spirits. I mean, heavens, uh, <laughs> you know, you, you get into kind of apoplexy territory with that. Um, so anyway, I, I, I just don't know the answer to that. But I do know that this, it's a major part of many psychotherapists' experience that they're picking up things, not just ideas, but somatic sensations and feeling what's happening in that person's life bodily as well as emotionally and, uh, and mentally. And because of this taboo within the academic world about these phenomena, it's not really been investigated as it ought to be. And I think it would make the practice of therapy more effective if, if people were freer to talk about it and and really think through what's going on. I mean, this is true. Actually, all these things are becoming increasingly relevant um, in medicine as well because of the general recognition now of the placebo effect. And this is not to do with telepathy, but it is to do with conscious expectation. People who expect to get better, who feel they're being well cared for, often do get better, and it's the placebo effect. And this becomes an important question when you're discussing, for example, the power of prayer. As I discuss in this book, Science and Spiritual Practices, some people who go on pilgrimages to healing shrines like Lourdes in France go there with a strong expectation they might be healed. They hear stories of people who have been healed there. There's loving and supporting people taking them there. There's people looking after them there, making them feel very cared for and, and, and so on all the conditions that would lead to a really strong placebo effect. And many people are cured there. 
so you see, if a skeptic comes along and says, oh, well, it's not a miracle healing, it's just a placebo effect. I mean, I would take the view, well, call it what you like. You know, the fact is, people go to a healing shrine and many are healed. And if you don't go to a healing shrine and you don't believe in it, then you're not going to get this placebo effect. So um, uh, whatever you call it, it works. Um, or at least for some people, some of the time. But I think that this, the importance of the attitude of mind and so-called placebo effects, the aspect is a part of consciousness studies um, and is becoming increasingly recognized as very important within the medical and the healing context, not only for physical, but also for emotional and psychological disorders. That's a really good opportunity for me to mention that a book that you'd be interested in um, is called Science Psychotherapy, which I've been editing by the authors Alex Tannis, Elaine Swinge and Andrew Bambrick. So you've got a psychic, a psychiatrist and a psychotherapy all working together and it all involves this telepathy between client and patient and also looking at as well the power of positive thinking and the placebo effect within that and it shows mm. some examples of some of the client's journeys through, throughout that whole process as well. Just get that in there. Early that sounds really interesting. <laughs> Sounds really interesting. When's it coming out, Early Karen? 2019. Okay. Yeah, <laughs> Anyone else? We've got time for one more question. It must be. I just, yeah. I just wanted to sort of follow on from that and say, talking earlier about how to convert the sceptics, and say, as a converted sceptic, for me it was counselling training that did it, because I used to be a research scientist very much in that hardened world of um, sort of, you know, nothing uh, outside what could be proven mm. um, and then retrained as a counsellor and through the training and getting in touch with intuition and perception and actually allowing that to happen was, was a big shift for me. That's really interesting. Yeah. I, I just wondered too, you touched on it earlier, but the, the difference in the way we communicate these days, how just you think that will affect, you know, the fact that we have got instantaneous communications with all over the world now, mm. how that will affect the telepathy. Yes. Well, I think what's happening, I think, with the massive use of telephones. I mean, telephone, when I was a child, we had a telephone at home in my hometown, New York in Nottinghamshire. There were about, out of 20,000 people, probably about 50 houses with telephones. And, and, you know, it was very rare. Now everyone's got a telephone, even in remote villages in Africa. Um, and What's happened is, is a tremendous increase in phenomena like telephone telepathy and text message telepathy as a byproduct, because you have permission to believe you can call someone anywhere in the world, and you can. And so you think about them, you think, I'm going to call them, and you're confident you'll be able to get in touch. And while you're forming that intention, confident you can get in touch, people may pick up your intention telepathically, start thinking about you. So when you actually make the call, they say, oh, it's funny, I was just thinking about you. Um, so I think... It's, it's led to a massive increase in, in, the, in the incidence of telepathy because most people before didn't think they could call anyone anywhere in the world and now they can and, and the telepathy goes along with it, free, has a free ride as it were or as a pre-echo of the telephone call. Um, so I do think these things are becoming um, more common. Um, and I think more, more people are open to the idea of, of interconnection. I mean, the internet is, a, of course, a physical structure, but it gives us this sense of interconnection. And the idea of collective unconscious, collective memory, and all these things which are part of Jungian psychology. And um, it, the, again, these things are becoming much more plausible now. Also, um, when 
scepticism first got going, the idea that you could have an influence going from one place to another invisibly, from one person to another, seemed completely impossible. But radio waves are now so common, every mobile phone works on them. The idea of invisible connections at a distance is no longer something that seems to violate science and demand a miracle, or the suspending of the laws of nature is just utterly commonplace in most people's experience. So I think all of these are going to lead to a shift. What surprises me is how slowly it happens in universities. Because the minute you step out of a university, it's pushing into an open door. Most people are perfectly happy to accept these things happen because they've experienced them. Okay, um, we'll leave any general questions for afterwards. I mean, once again, Rupert, thank you so much for coming to visit us at the University of Northampton. It's been great to have you again. And please, everyone, give them a warm round of applause. Thank you very much.